The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Five. And that's really where we are now. I think a display of total ineptitude masquerading as progress. Four. I say it would look mad. I say that almost everyone in the country would just think the Tories have completely lost the plot. Running heat pumps and electric cars using fossil fuel-based electricity is a nonsense. All I can see at every turn is looming disaster. I think toast is getting a bit of a bad rap here. We all like toast. I refuse to have Rishi Sunak described as toast. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, a Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. He's even limper than the lettuce. That's the Daily Star's verdict of Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. And as ever, the Star's journalism is based on robust factual analysis. (laughs) Because pollsters, JL partners found that just 59% of voters who backed Boris Johnson in the 2019 general election still support the Tories under Sunak. That's lower than the 63% score, in Star's words, that the lettuce Liz Truss managed. Towards the end of Truss's somewhat truncated 49-day stint as Prime Minister, the Daily Star did, of course, ask readers to bet which would last longer, (laughs) Truss's premiership or a putrefying lettuce. These are the journalistic standards, Alison, the rapier-like insights (laughs) to which Planet Normal must aspire. Are we now witnessing, though, co-pilot, the beginning of the end of Rishi Sunak? With former Home Secretary Sweller Braverman pressuring the Prime Minister to tackle the small boats issue, taking the UK out of the ECHR, the European Convention of Human Rights, if necessary, there are rumours swirling of letters being sent to 1922 Committee Chair Sir Graham Brady. Could the Tories be mad enough to change the leader again before the general election? Four Prime Ministers in one Parliament. Crikey, as Boris would say. It could happen given that so many Conservative MPs are anyway resigned to losing the next election. There's a lot going on, co-pilot. Current Home Secretary James Cleverley has been in Rwanda and Boris Johnson's being grilled before the Covid inquiry. But let's start discussing the question at hand. Will Rishi Sunak lead the Tories into the next general election, which needs to happen by January 2025? Or is he toast? You know, I think toast is getting a bit of a bad rap here. We all like toast. What's wrong with toast? (laughs) I refuse to have Rishi Sunak described as toast, which is a favourite British national dish, unlike our Prime Minister. It's been quite a week, hasn't it, co-pilot, sweeping up after those record net immigration figures last week. The Tory cabinet, stirred from its coma-like slumber, has sprung into action and we have seen a bunch of measures which are designed to reduce net immigration. I think almost everybody thinks too little, too late, but they do reduce the capacity of people to bring in dependents, which is a huge number that many people would argue should never have come in in the first place. And of course, they have raised the salary, which is what Suella Braverman has been saying for a long time and indeed, which is what those of us who voted Conservative in 2019 voted for, which was a significantly higher entry point rate for people coming in. So I think the salary has now gone up to 38,000. And in addition to those tightening up 
I mean, we've had these tightening up criteria for immigration. But of course, Liam, this is the Conservative government now trying to claim some kind of victory or success from this tightening up, which should never have been allowed to be lax in the first place. And I have to say, I did laugh heartily when James Cleverly, the Home Secretary, <laughs> stood up with a dispatch box and delivered a line from the Alison Pearson column, enough is enough. <laughs> Enough is enough of policies which we have been pursuing ourselves and which we have now decided are completely wrong and will be put into reverse. Donna Summer, Enough is Enough. Do you remember that Donna Summer song? <laughs> enough is enough. enough. Is it? It's actually called No More Tears, but anyway. I love that song. And while we're talking about cheesy songs, when you said toast, yes. in my head I went toast, just a little bit of toast, which was, of course, a song by Street Band. Yes. Their front man was Paul Young who went on to, you know, love of the common people and all the rest of it. Yeah, he was. And I like that. I love that Donna Summer song, Enough is Enough. But I think Rishi Sunak in a leotard singing Enough is Enough on top of the pops would have been... No, he needs to be Gloria Gaynor in <laughs> roller skate singing, Gaynor. I will survive, I will survive. <laughs> so, yes, I mean, I think we've got this extraordinary situation where the Conservatives are now pushing through measures to combat a situation which should never have been allowed to develop in the first place. Plus, we've so far sent no illegal migrants to Rwanda, but we have sent an enormous number of, of home Cabinet ministers. <laughs> I mean, it's like... And cash. Poor Rwanda. Can you imagine? They're sitting there thinking, oh, God, there's another one coming in now. So cleverly has to try and get round the Supreme Court objections to deporting illegal migrants to Rwanda. The government has now signed a treaty with Rwanda, which basically says Rwanda's saying we're going to be terribly nice to all these people and we're going to give them lovely dance lessons and swimming lessons and so on. Personally, I don't think I've had a look at some of the detail and I don't think any of it's going to actually do anything about the Supreme Court objections, which were really based on the nature of the government and the judiciary in Rwanda. But all of this, as you said, Liam, adds up to a huge problem for the government, particularly with Suella Braverman, now former Home Secretary, taking aim from the back benches with a very, very well-aimed attack today, saying that the Conservative Party was heading for electoral oblivion if it continued with different legislation that failed to stop the boats. And that's really where we are now. I think a display of total ineptitude masquerading as progress. It was very strong from Braverman. I mean, usually cabinet ministers who are sacked, and she was sacked, don't get to stand up in the Commons and do a resignation speech, but she did. It is now or never, the former Home Secretary told the Commons on Wednesday Afternoon, The Conservative Party faces, as you say, Alison, electoral oblivion in a matter of months if we introduce yet another bill destined to fail. Do we fight for sovereignty or let our party die? And I agree with you. I'm no lawyer, but reading the runes and talking to people, if the sum total of the government's action is to you know, issue a letter, which Rwanda then reissues, saying we won't send people who come from the UK back to their home country, because then, of course, if they were asylum seekers, they could be in danger. I don't think the Supreme Court's going to wear that for a moment. No. And I don't think Rishi Sunak and even James Cleverley have got the stomach to actually take the UK 
out of the ECHR or to introduce legislation that involves a sort of notwithstanding clause that gets around the fact that we are in the ECHR. I think there are dozens of One Nation Tory backbenchers who will say to themselves, and many, many, many civil servants, we do not go to work every day to take Britain out of the ECHR. Of course, the ECHR was written in the shadow of the Second World War by British lawyers. It was very much a response to the ghastly events of the Second World War, not least the Holocaust. Suella Braverman and other qualified lawyers have said it isn't actually suitable for the modern day where travel is so much easier. We're all connected by social media and something more modern and updated is needed. But look, Braverman and her troops in the House of Commons and Miriam Cates, the Common Sense Group, these overlapping Tory tribes now who really, I wouldn't say they've got knives out for the Prime Minister, but they've got certainly eyebrows raised in his direction. They are now forming a star chamber, if you like, of of legal expertise to look through the bill that the government is going to publish that's designed to deal with small boats. And if it's just lip service, If it's a bill that the Supreme Court's likely to reject again, once it is an act, then I think Sunak is going to come under enormous pressure. And we've had a couple of rebellions in the last two days, the biggest rebellions of his premiership so far, particularly on net zero. We're going to come back to that. 26 Tory MPs who voted against the government. The government seemed to be diluting its pledge to not ban petrol and diesel cars until 2035 rather than 2030. That seems to be being diluted. And 26 Tory MPs, including former Home Secretaries Priti Patel, Braverman herself, Jacob Rees-Mogg, former Cabinet Minister John Redwood. I mean, some people will say, oh, they're just the usual suspects. But when you've got a majority, (laughs) you know, not much more than 50, and 26 of your own MPs are prepared to humiliate you publicly by rebelling, you've got a problem. You say, Liam, that all these One Nation Tories and the various civil servants didn't go into this line of business to come out of the ECHR. I would say to you that millions of people who voted for Brexit and millions of people who voted Conservative in 2019 were told quite categorically that we would be regaining control of our borders. I actually think that this is a massive betrayal, which is causing rancid disillusion amongst Conservative voters who certainly will not be, as we have seen recently, in by-elections and and looking forward, will not be voting Conservative. And can I just make the point that when the people object to the number of care workers being limited coming in and also the number of care workers who were enabled to bring dependents, which, by the way, they cannot take into any other European country, as far as I'm aware. And there was an elderly lady this week, you may have seen the story, Liam, a 91-year-old lady in a care home who got trapped in a lift and the care home workers in her care home were unable to speak English to a sufficient standard to call the ambulance and explain the situation. I would suggest to you that many British elderly people would like to be dealt with in their later years with dignity by people who could talk to them in their own language. And let's also 
look at the fact that the Conservative government is apparently congratulating itself with these recent measures on getting the numbers of net immigration down to between 300 and 400,000, which is at least double what it was when we voted for Brexit. I mean, we are in the realms of lunacy here, Liam, and I have absolutely no sympathy for Sunak, who, as far as I am concerned, is completely committed to allowing as much immigration as possible and has only taken these actions with a gun to his temple. And we have to ask ourselves, why does a Conservative government is only prepared to take any Conservative measures when it is faced with absolutely appalling opinion polls? And let me finish this rant because I actually think this bill this week, we were given the impression, were we not, that there was going to be a postponement of the electric vehicle requirement, but pushed back from 20 to 2035. We'll talk about this a bit later because it's completely insane and unachievable anyway. But then sneakily, Sunak actually now pushing through a piece of legislation which says that 80% of vehicles have to be electric vehicles before that date. So effectively, cancelling the measure which many Conservatives took as a sign that he was listening. Yeah, I thought that was really badly judged because the 2035 cutoff is, of course, the EU's cutoff as well. So what he's done is he's very much diluted that move away from 2035 and back to 2030. And when he moved to 2035, it played quite well in the opinion polls. And also a lot of very, very knowledgeable people chimed in and said, look, the reality is the UK car industry just isn't ready. We'd just be handing a huge chunk of our car market to the Chinese who are making electric vehicles much, much more cheaply and in much, much greater numbers than we are if this 2035 ban comes in. So it does seem like a bit of a vault fass. And you get this sense that Rishi Sunak, who, you know, he's obviously a very clever guy, he's very polished, nice credentials and all the rest of it. But you get the sense that he hasn't really got the kind of political grit and determination and the willingness to upset people that sometimes political leadership requires, particularly under difficult circumstances as we currently are. And I thought the atmosphere, certainly looking on at the footage, I thought the atmosphere in the House of Commons when Suella Braverman was speaking was pretty tempestuous. And I'm getting lots of WhatsApps from people on the back benches who I've known for many years, who I trust, who are saying to me, letters going in, tick, tick, tick. And not just the usual suspects now are telling me that that is happening. We have to ask ourselves, Alison, and I put it in the intro, would it be seen as mad if the Tories did another leadership election before <laughs> the general election? I say it would look mad. I say that almost everyone in the country would just think the Tories have completely lost the plot, even though there may be sound political strategic reasons if you're an outgoing MP of course, 60, 70 odd Tory MPs have said they're not going to stand again and counting. If you're an outgoing Tory MP, you may want a leadership change. It may be the last big decision that you can help to influence. There are many people in the party now saying we've lost the next election, whatever it is. Let's get rid of Sunak. Let's limit the losses. Let's get someone else, a fresh face in there who can hit the ground running after the next general election and limit Starmer to one term, limiting him to one term, not least because he is going to face a very, very tricky 
economic inheritance with very high debt service payments, with huge levels of taxation as a share of GDP approaching a 70-year high, with his own backbenchers baying for ever more public spending, and financial markets and the bond markets looking on at the UK, already spending 10% of all government revenue on the servicing of our huge public sector debt, wondering if the Labour Party is going to revert to type and actually start spending a lot of money. Starmer this week was at pains to say that he wouldn't do that. But if he only has a majority of 30 or 40, he is going to be very much at the beck and call of the campaign group of hard left Labour MPs. I thought it's very interesting what he did this week. I mean, slightly cheeky, but he he wrote a piece for the Telegraph associating himself with the demon witch herself, Margaret Thatcher, didn't he? Pointing out what she needed to do coming in to a country that was was in a dire state and also saying very categorically, don't be disappointed, a Labour government is not going to be turning on the spending tap. So I think we are very much now seeing Starmer, whether he's doing Tony Blair's bidding or whether he's merely shaping himself in the image of Blair, that's very much where he's pitching his tent. And by writing that article for The Telegraph, he's reaching out, isn't he, Liam, to Conservative voters massively disillusioned with the Conservative Party and thinking, how could it possibly be worse? Would it be completely bonkers to have another Tory leadership election? Well, clearly the last one was pretty mad. I think that where we are now is we are in the grounds of modifying the scale of the loss. So I think if they go into the next election with Sunak, I think they could easily go below 100 seats. I think it could be even worse than that. We've talked before about the 1924 election, which saw the effective wiping out of the Liberal Party. The leader of the Liberal Party, Asquith, lost his seat. I mean, we would be in dire straits. Everybody can remember, Liam, can't they? Were you up for Portillo, which was the 1997 humiliation of Michael Portillo in his end? field seat, I certainly think in 2024, we could see a large number of Conservative ministers wiped out. I wouldn't even bet on Sunak holding his seat on the basis that I don't think even Richmond, North Yorkshire could necessarily be a safe seat. So in electing another leader, mad as it might seem, it might restrict the scale of the loss, which would give them a base to build from or what are they reduced to? I mean, ruins, really. What do you think? I think your call that they could get less than 100 seats is a big call, but you've made some big calls on this podcast in previous months and years, and you've been proved right, except, of course, when you've betted against me and then you've been proved <laughs> Of wrong. course. But back in 1997, I remember as a young political reporter, the Tories got 165 seats down from 343 seats. So they lost 178 seats. For them to lose even more and go below 100 would be pretty astonishing. I think a lot of it does depend on the economy. Sunak's got a constituency majority of 25,000 plus. If he lost his seat, blimey. I mean, (laughs) I can't think there'll be many Conservative MPs in the land. I do think that it's interesting what Starmer's doing. His speech this week had all the fingerprints of Peter Mandelson over it. 
going back to 1997, who is yeah. advising the Labour Party. Starmer doesn't only want, as you say, Alison, to reach out to former Conservative voters and particularly the swing voters in the middle of the electorate who determine who gets the keys to number 10. He also wants to goad the left. He wants to have a fight with his own left wing. He wants to wind them up. So they start saying nasty things about him. And then he's saying to the rest of the electorate, you see, I'm going to tame these guys. You see the problem I have, but I'm going to tame them. I'm not scared to take them on. I'm not scared to tell them who's boss. And this is a tried and tested Labour election tactic. And it's often quite effective. And it's interesting he chose the Telegraph. It's interesting he chose to present himself in the words of some of his opponents as a Thatcher fanboy. It's also interesting to me, I think, that... He is hinting, Labour spin doctors are hinting, what Labour may do is pledge to match the Tories' spending plans. So whatever kind of spending plans the government comes up with, and they're going to be pretty tight, that's the only way Jeremy Hunt can make his numbers add up. Of course, his recent autumn statement didn't contain any spending pledges. It was all about taxation. Making the numbers add up means we're going to need to seriously curtail spending in some areas. So by matching the Tory spending plans, Starmer is not only saying to the electorate, I am grown up, I am responsible, I am not like Jeremy Corbyn, I am not fiscally incontinent like some Labour leaders of the past. He's also preemptively blaming the Tories for any austerity that is coming down the track. He is getting it into the electorate's head and you know, as Alistair Campbell, Peter Mandelson, all those 1997 stalwarts will tell you, it's all about saying the same thing again and again and again until it finally lands with the general public who, for them, politics in many cases is just a passing interest. So I do think these are tried and tested Blairite tactics. Starmer will be happy that he's winding up the left because that is why he's saying what he's saying about Thatcher. So the other big story, Liam, obviously, is Boris Johnson has been on the stand at the increasingly ridiculous COVID inquiry. I mean, I've only had snatches of it today. I've been battling on my own a a suspiciously COVID-like virus, but we won't mention that because we're not talking about the bloody virus anymore. It was interesting to me, the bits I did catch, that Boris was basically talking about having no choice. I had no other tool, literally nothing else that he had originally, of course, said, why are we destroying everything for people who will die anyway? And then he said he dissociated himself from those comments when Baroness Hallett asked him about whether he'd been reluctant to lock down. And he said that it was an indication of the cruelty of the choice we faced and the appalling balancing act I had to do throughout the pandemic. What have you made, Liam, of what he said so far? I must say, I think Boris Johnson has done well to keep his temper in check. There were points where he did seem a little curt and short with the QC who was questioning him. There was a moment or two when he looked as if he was literally about to cry. There's obviously huge pressure on him. And let's be clear, whatever you think of Boris Johnson, a lot of the point of this inquiry has been for the establishment, the civil service, all the officials to blame the politicians rather than blaming themselves. And Boris has very much had a target on his back throughout this inquiry. So for him to turn up and face the music for two days, of course, we're recording on Wednesday. He's appearing before the committee on Thursday again. So it's a Wednesday and Thursday. And I think in general, he's held his ground. You get the sense that 
he's basically saying, I thought lockdown was a bad idea, but I was pushed into doing it. I think that's his general tactic. And I think in many cases, there will be Planet Normal listeners who feel that history is on his side when he said that. When you look at the comparable experiences of Sweden and the UK, the UK, of course, with many more excess deaths than Sweden, even though Sweden didn't nearly to the same extent as we did. So I do feel there's growing public discontent with this extremely expensive, extremely drawn out inquiry that's going to last for years. It's going to cost £100 million. It's a lawyer's bonanza paid for by us. And yet I don't feel, and I think a lot of our readers and listeners don't feel, certainly if you read their emails and so on, that we're really getting down to the nitty gritty of the questions that need to be answered. Not why didn't lockdown happen sooner, harder, faster, but a far more fundamental question, should we have locked down? That's what we need to know. And it's almost as if the KCs, the very sophisticated lawyers, it's almost as if they want to close down that real debate. Do you remember when Michael Gove suggested something that Planet Normal listeners have been hearing for years, that COVID is very strong evidence to say it's non-zoonotic, it's a man-made virus. Sir Richard Dearlove, the former head of British intelligence, told us that back in mid-2020, didn't he? And yet the KCs wanted to close down that line of inquiry. Surely that's an absolutely vital thing. That's what the inquiry should be looking at. Rather than going through endless WhatsApp messages, KCs grandstanding, enjoying reading out profane messages that people were pinging each other in the heat of a political crisis. It strikes me that this is all about theatre with no substance whatsoever. You know what's really strange, Liam? I was thinking about this because obviously you and I and Planet Normal listeners, we've delved very deeply into this, haven't we? This inquiry feels like it's taking place in a parallel universe, which has had no connection with the information that's been filtering through into the real world for the last couple of years. So we know from two major studies it released this year, including one very significant study from Johns Hopkins University in the States and Lund University, that lockdown saved hardly any lives at all, if indeed any. And the costs of lockdown in terms of just deaths and all the collateral damage, which we've had itemised on Planet Normal. We had that very moving email from Rick last week about the inability to see his dying father. I mean, I am absolutely enraged, even when I see like on the Today programme yesterday, Wednesday, they interview a person whose elderly relative died of COVID. And I think, yes, well, the average age of death in the United Kingdom is over 82.4 years, which is the average age of death from COVID. And if it were me, Liam, running that inquiry, Every single day, I would read out something from a child whose speech was delayed, from a teenager who developed anorexia, from a young person whose job prospects were blighted, from a student whose university career was derailed. I would read out every single day to those smug people the evidence of what their 
lockdown policy has caused and the continuing the ongoing, I mean, this week, children's progress in maths and English just this week has been set back. And I think it's very interesting because I think what's coming through Boris's testimony, when he has been at his most honest, and, you know, he is to his great credit honest, this is one of the things Boris Johnson said for which he was criticised. This was in a message If I were an 80-year-old and I was told that the choice was between destroying the economy and risking my exposure to a disease that I had a 94% chance of surviving, I know what I would prefer, he mused in a message to his health secretary and other advisers in August 2021. And two weeks earlier, he privately reflected that for the over 65s, the risk of dying of COVID was probably as big as the risk of falling downstairs. And we don't stop older people using stairs. He wanted to explore the merit in offering the over 65s a choice. So I think now that it is just surreal that this hugely expensive public inquiry, which has already cost a hundred million pounds, has failed to take on board any of the bona fide evidence about the harms of lockdown and seems to be increasingly concerned with charging Boris Johnson with a failure to take locking down seriously. It's absolutely mad, Liam. It's Alice in Wonderland levels of lunacy. I think it's also worth saying, Alison, because I rarely see it in the newspapers, that a lot of the officials and civil servants who have been giving testimony at this inquiry, all their kids were still at school during lockdown yeah, yeah, because they, they were, were special yeah, they workers, were. right? My kids weren't at school. You know, I don't mind saying publicly, I feel really sorry for my kids during lockdown. I feel really sorry For lots of kids, millions of kids during lockdown, I've seen what lockdown has done to kids at first hand as a parent of school and university age children and students. It was really, really bad. And in some cases, the impact, I'm afraid to say, will be lifelong. And Molly Kingsley and her fabulous troops at Us For Them had to fight to even get consideration of impact on children as part of this inquiry. And I haven't heard much about the consideration of the impact on children so far. Maybe that's coming. Before we move on, Alison, I just wanted to say a few words about Alistair Darling, the former Labour cabinet minister, former chancellor, of course. Between 2007 and 2010, he oversaw the UK's reaction, indeed much of the world's reaction to the global financial crisis. Alistair Darling and I, we sometimes disagreed about things and that's to be expected. But I do think he was a decent man. I do think he was a serious chancellor, a talented chancellor. And the thing I always associate with Alistair Darling isn't just the key role he played during the global financial crisis, even though Gordon Brown's number 10 Downing Street was massively briefing against him during that crucial moment to preemptively blame him, the chancellor, in case something went wrong. And I won't only remember the pivotal role for which I'm very grateful as a non-Scot who really wanted the UK to stay together. He played a brilliant role in the Better Together campaign, bringing together cross-party supporters of a no vote in that 2014 Scottish referendum. I thought he did that really, really well. But what I'll always associate with him personally, many conversations, many email exchanges, many interviews I did with him, he was really good at disagreeing agreeably. 
he had really good soft diplomatic skills even though when it came down to it he could dig his heels in and stand up to his opponents and people who were trying to give him a hard time he really stood up to Gordon Brown when Gordon Brown was at the height of his hubris as Prime Minister Alistair Darling had to fend off Prime Minister Gordon Brown because Gordon Brown tried to sack him and that's on the record which would have been the wrong thing to do so I think it's worth saying as Planet Normal presenters that this is a Telegraph podcast I think a lot of our listeners and readers are natural conservative voters though many aren't as we know but I think it's worth saying that this was a really good Labour Chancellor and it's interesting because Jeremy Hunt at the very moment he was claiming that Labour were lying about their spending plans and their taxation plans in a bid to try and damage the Labour Party when Alistair Darling his unfortunate passing was announced the current Chancellor had to immediately do a reverse ferret and say Alistair Darling, he was one of the great chancellors of our time. It was good timing for the Labour Party. But I did just want to mark the fact that I thought Alistair Darling was a decent guy. We didn't always agree, but we always disagreed agreeably. And I think the world is less well off for the fact that he's no longer around. I think that's well put, Liam. And I should say to Planet Normal listeners who aren't on Twitter or X, as we must now call it, that Liam wrote a beautiful tribute to Alistair Darling, which I hope that we can perhaps put in the show notes so you can all read it. It got tremendous reaction from across the entire political ground. It was it was really lovely, Liam. And I just think he was a really good man trying to do good things. And it's always important, I think, to salute people who are on different sides of the political divide to us who we think are the good guys. Final anecdote about Alistair Darling. Alistair Darling was the Transport Secretary who actually signed the bill, the legislation that created the company HS2. But as HS2, the plans were rolled out, he became an opponent of it. <laughs> and I once said to him, what does it feel like, Alistair, to be the man who you know set this runaway train off on its path? And he said, I signed the bill, but I didn't think they'd be effing stupid enough to do it. <laughs> Palestinians in Gaza living through a bombardment that they've never experienced before. Introducing Battle Lines, an original Telegraph podcast. Listen to expert analysis of the Israel-Hamas war, follow on-the-ground reporting, and understand how the conflict is reshaping our world. It's a small country. Everyone knows someone whose relatives have been killed or kidnapped. Things are starting to broaden out from Gaza from Israel. Listen to Battle Lines every Friday on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As COP28, that global summit of the great and the green, is taking place in Dubai this week, I thought it was a good opportunity, Liam, to get one of our most eminent and commonsensical critics of the net zero situation on board our rocket. Michael Kelly is Emeritus Professor of Engineering at the University of Cambridge. He's a Fellow of the Royal Society, of the Royal Academy of Engineering, of the Institute of Physics and of the Institution of Engineering and Technology, as well as Senior Member of the Institute of Electronic and Electrical Engineering in the United States. When Michael Kelly concluded his academic career, he was the inaugural Prince Philip Professor of Technology at Cambridge. Michael's main research focus was in new semiconductor physics and technology for 
for ultra-high-speed electronic devices and the manufacturability of semiconductor structures at the nanoscale. Michael Kelly is a trustee of the Global Warming Policy Foundation, which is where I was lucky enough to meet him. For a decade or more, he has been a powerful, if shamefully lonely voice, wondering how on earth our country is supposed to hit net zero without the money, the materials or the workforce. I began by asking Professor Kelly whether there are signs at COP28 that the narrative is starting to unravel. Well, I'm sort of quite encouraged. I mean, I agree with the prince. I'm all for winding down fossil fuels only if and only we have a satisfactory, practical, affordable and reliable alternative. That is, you know, we moved from the essentially bicycle power to motorbikes or horsepower to cars because the new technology was available to do something that the horse and the bicycle didn't do. As soon as we get uh, new forms of cars and new forms of everything else that do better, I, for example, am wondering, I don't know how to get a hold of the data, but I'd like to know what was the fate of electric cars that got stalled in Cumbria over Mm. the last few days? Did they run out of batteries? And if so, did they have to be towed away? I'm all with the prince, provided there's a practical alternative ready to deploy at scale very rapidly. And as far as I'm concerned, there is no such thing. Michael, during the COVID-19 pandemic, which Liam and I talked about a lot on Planet Normal, we saw ministers presented with worst case scenario modelling. In fact, one of the modellers admitted he hadn't even been asked to provide less pessimistic scenarios. Do you think we're in danger with climate change and net zero of once again seeing ministers presented with only one possible path rather than a range of possibilities? Yes, I do. And what I feel most importantly is the absence of project engineers from the current debate. They're used to starting a project and finishing it. Terminals 1 to 5 at Heathrow, the Olympic Park. These are all projects which were started and completed by engineers. As soon as you look at the net zero project as a series of complicated but interlocking engineering projects, then the scales will fall off the eyes of anybody who wants to look at it, not just the engineers. Everyone knows the UK target for hitting net zero is 2050. Now, we've recently seen a bit of tweaking to the target for electric vehicles. The transition from fossil fuels, would you say, Michael, be the biggest engineering project undertaken in British history? How prepared are we as a country for the biggest engineering project in British history? Well, my estimate is that the expansion of the grid to uh, cope with the electrification of heat and ground transport, two of the essential items, is about 1.4 trillion, which is about Mm. 30 HS2s Mm. a year, i.e. one a year for the next 30 years. And um, you can very quickly work out, I've consulted a number of engineering companies saying that if I had a billion pounds project for infrastructure rollout in electricity, new cables, new distribution, etc. how many person years of professional engineering time would you need? And they say for about a billion pounds, you'd need about a thousand person years of in- professional engineering time. We'd 40,000 engineers working each year for 30 years. Mm. Now, we only have 40,000 
electrical engineers in the country doing everything that electrical engineers do today. And so we'd need suddenly another 20,000 of those and about another 20,000 civil engineers. And they take about 10 years to train from somebody at school deciding to become a professional engineer. And uh, the real problem I think we'll see is associated with the supply of green electricity. All of that green energy has had the sole function of displacing carbon. That's all. So we have a situation where we're going to, in about 10 years at the rate things are going, we're going to have all these heat pumps and all these electric cars, but no green electricity to run them. And the thought of running heat pumps and electric cars using fossil fuel-based electricity is a nonsense. So all I can see at every turn is a looming disaster. And furthermore, it's a looming disaster, which I think is far more likely to happen than any of the speculations about long-term future disastrous climate change. Michael, last year you published a brilliant paper called Achieving Net Zero, a report from a putative delivery agency. Now, the government has not done a proper cost-benefit analysis of what it will take to reach their target of being carbon neutral by 2050. So in your report, you imagined that you'd been appointed CEO of a new agency with the explicit goal of delivering net zero by 2050. Can you just give us a few of the factors that you think the British public has not been made aware of? There are two, one of which we've already considered. Nobody has thought about the project of expanding the electricity sector to cope with electrified heat and electrified ground transport. And there are four problems, each of which a project engineer would want answers before engaging properly. First of all, nobody has come out to commit the finance of 1.4 trillion, which is my estimate. Mm. None of them have said where the 40,000 professional engineers are going to come from. If we were to convert all of our cars to battery cars tomorrow, we would need one year's global supply of lithium just for Mm -hmm. the UK. So nobody's telling us where all these materials are going to come from and who is going to mine them. And fourthly, nobody's told anybody about the 30 years of disruption that will occur while all this work is going on. We have a command economy. That is, if we go back to a sort of World War II footing, and you'll be told what you do and no ifs or buts, then we might just get there. But we'll pay an enormous amount in terms of opportunity cost, all the things that we won't be able to do with health, education and defence, because we're trying to improve to get towards net zero. Well, our finances aren't looking that clever at the moment anyway. I mean, so you're just even just talking in one section about the need to rewire homes street distribution, local substations, because many older houses have 60 amp fuses, which was a size set when demands were basically the biggest demanding appliance was a kettle. And you say at the very least, the mains fuse will need upgrading, local substations greatly expanded, wiring in houses and along the streets will need upgrading to carry. uh, If I could just come in on that one, somebody was telling me the other day that the companies who make transformers have got 10-year order books already there. So Even if there was an available workforce, which there clearly isn't, you've Mm. said it's been estimated to cost £700 billion to carry out this work on local distribution 
in, in the fact, UK alone. And without this yeah. spending, we'll have to live with frequent circuit breaks and suboptimal performances of domestic yes. appliances. And you actually say that the final sum for the UK is probably greater than the three trillion pounds that the United States spent on World War Two. On what possible basis is the Conservative government and the Labour opposition telling the British people that this is going to happen by 2050? The problem is it's not going to happen because although it mightn't violate the laws of physics, it certainly violates all the laws of engineering projects. It's just not going to happen. And the people who say it is going to happen are simply kidding themselves. I mean, one of my problems is that if I take just the building sector and the transport and the electricity sector, electrifying everything and improving homes, we get figures that represent nine, seven, eight or nine percent of GDP between now and 2050. Well, the Lord Nicholas Stern's report said it would be one percent. I wrote to uh, Lord Deben as chairman of the Climate Change Committee and mm. said, could I please come along and talk to the engineers who developed the numbers by which they came to their figures? I said, I would like to examine closely their approximations so we can settle out where the differences are, because mm. the differences are all in the approximations. And my approximation to start with is that we're going to lead a lifestyle roughly comparable to that which we're doing today and not some hair shirt, Venezuelan type economic living. The reply I got from Chris Stack, who's the secretary to the committee, was, Professor Kelly, thank you very much for your critique of our work, but we choose not to engage with you at this time. Mm. So this is an official government body choosing to ignore any form of critical analysis. So just for transport alone, we'll need to increase the electricity supply by about... 67% to, yes. to maintain transport in the UK at today's level in 2050. Yeah. So we would be looking, would we not, at a huge expansion of the national grid. Now, could we do that with Ed Miliband's renewables, could we? No, we couldn't, uh, for a whole series of reasons. And also, let me come back, just in case anybody wants to attack me. It is quite possible between now and 2050, that our attitudes towards ownership of cars, and in this case, electric cars, may well change. There is a change coming already, and it might accelerate. And that is that if you live in large cities now, if you want a car, it's easier to hire one when you want it. Of course, if I have a car that sits out on the road, and I'm only driving in it two hours per week, which is about 4%. And if I was part of a car club, you know, the cars might be used for 50% of their time by different users. So I'm quite happy to concede and give ground on my numbers for massive changes in our lifestyles and the way we do things. I don't mind that. But the people who are advocating net zero should be telling us of all these changes that are implicit in the assumptions they make to get to net zero. Some other figures jumped out at me. So this move from petrol and diesel cars to electric vehicles, we've already seen some great reluctance amongst the British public to change over. And you've said that if the UK were to convert overnight to an electric vehicle fleet, 
These are some of the materials that we would require. I think it's worth reading them out, Michael. So we'd need 207,900 tonnes of cobalt. That's almost double the annual global production of cobalt. 246,000 tonnes of lithium carbonate. That's three quarter of the world's current production. At least 7,200 tonnes of neodymium and diprosium. Nearly the entire world production of neodymium and 2 million 362,500 tonnes of copper, and that's more than a sixth of the world's production in 2018. So as you say, we see a very steep rise in the mining of these materials, which do involve unregulated and child labour, as well as dreadful impact on biodiversity, which Extinction Rebellion and Just Stop Oil are tremendously keen in preserving. This is not even vaguely plausible, is it? It is not. So when we hear Keir Starmer, very likely to be the Prime Minister next year, pledging to throw everything at net zero, overhaul of the UK's energy system and industries, new jobs in the race of our lifetime to a low carbon future. And Sir Keir also recently announced that the UK will grant no new licences for oil and gas to drill in the North Sea if Labour wins the next election. Michael, is our political class totally delusional? So what is driving these I'll tell you, there's, there are a couple claims. of very <clears throat> serious things driving, but I'll just leap in and say one optimistic thing. I come from New Zealand and the new New Zealand government have just cancelled the cancellation of new licences. Just as politicians can ban things, they can unban them just as quickly. I think the real point is that my view is that they're going to go so far until something, and I don't know what it is, will provoke them just like the poll tax. And at that point, the proverbial will hit the fan and all bets are off. Finally, is there a strong case to repeal the net zero emissions legislation and replace it with a longer time horizon? Yes. I mean, the whole question of 2050 has a very interesting origin because there was a committee looking into carbon dioxide. I think it was the National Committee for Nuclear Safety and Environment, but they looked at carbon dioxide in the year 2000. And one of my friends who was on it told me that they went around the world asking everybody, when did you think we could have 10% of the world's energy being provided by nuclear fusion, as opposed to fission that we have today? And the answer was not before 2050. So the word 2050 stuck in their recommendations that whatever we do, we've got to get to 2050 without any form of nuclear fusion. That has stuck and everybody has hung their peg on 2050. I mean, if they'd hung their peg on 2100. Mm. um, The other thing I think that's really interesting today is if you actually look at the world today compared with 1800 and the temperature has gone up by one degree, although everybody keeps telling us about how much worse the weather is. In fact, when you look back in history, first of all, there are fewer people in many places to record what happened. There's no evidence that in long-term thinking, in long-term reckoning, that the, the individual events are getting worse or more intense. And this is a thing which it doesn't matter how many times people do the analyses, it's just ignored. Well, I say on behalf of the residents of Planet Normal that we are very, very glad and lucky that we've got someone as eminent, brilliant engineer as you to point all this stuff out to us. I'm certainly planning on being alive in 2050 to say I told you so. Okay. (laughs) Thank you so much. I thought that was really interesting, Alison, a brave academic. There aren't many people 
at such eminent universities as Cambridge who are backing Michael Kelly, but clearly he has astonishing credentials. And I just wanted to point out the sort of geopolitics of this. Rare earths are so important, those elements in making electric vehicles. And guess what? China has 34% of known global reserves of those 17 elements, the so-called rare earths that we need for not just electric vehicles, but wind turbines, lasers, other forms of consumer electronics. The Chinese got 34%. The Americans have got just 2% and the Australians have got just a little bit more. So China really dominates. And China hasn't only got 34% of known global reserves of rare earths. They accounted last year for 70% of production of rare earths across the world. And they've got 85% of the capacity to produce the machinery and the mining technology and the plant. 85% of the capacity to process rare earth ores, so manufacturers can use them, is controlled by China. Is this really a good idea? Don't you think, Liam, listening to Professor Kelly, is any of this a good idea? I want us to go on and keep discussing this because I think there's nothing more important than our country. I just want to say that the group think which bedeviled our response to COVID should not be allowed to bedevil our response to climate change or indeed net zero. The idea that we are embarked on a path which is going to be ruinous in terms of expense and with little or no positive outcome absolutely appalls me. And I really urge Planet Normal listeners in the show notes, you'll be able to read Michael Kelly's extraordinary risk benefit analysis of what trying to reach net zero by 2050 would actually involve. Now on to our listener emails. Your messages sent to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We love to read your thoughts. We learn so much from you, the citizens of Planet Normal. Yes, last week we read out a letter from Rick telling us the tragic story of how during lockdown he was not allowed by staff at Salford Hospital to visit his dying father. Many listeners were incredibly moved by Rick's story and had similar cruel tales of their own. Nick says, thank you for reading Rick's letter and equally thanks are due to Rick for his fortitude during such an awful experience. My reaction would have been to smash through the door, even though the consequences would in many ways have been worse from the authorities that not only lost all sense of rational judgment, but humanity too during those dark weeks and months. There must be many like Rick and his sisters, says Nick, who are suffering in similar ways, riven with guilt because they were forbidden to care for their dying or adequately mourn their dead. Maybe there will be a reckoning one day, maybe not in my lifetime, but that day will surely come. And Anne says, Dear Alison and Liam, great episode. Rick's email resonated greatly with our own family circumstances when my father-in-law was admitted to hospital early September 2020 and sadly died on the 22nd without my husband being able to see him at all. My mother-in-law was able to see her husband for a limited time daily for the first week and my brother-in-law only because he told them he was his mother's carer. But then the visit 
visits were suspended and my father-in-law sadly passed away on his own with the fear of hospitals prior to COVID, which must have greatly exacerbated his anxieties and most likely speeded up the process leading to his death, which, as with Rick's dad, was not due to COVID. Again, like Rick, I will never forgive the NHS and government policies. The COVID inquiry conclude anything they like to inform the conduct of another pandemic, but we will not be locked down again. Of None of our family members will seek hospital support in that event. The COVID inquiry is a total shambles and no one appears able to challenge it to get the voices of reason heard. Please keep up your great work, Anne. Good email. This is from Helen. Dear Alison and Liam, I too am increasingly exasperated by the COVID inquiry. It's costing an eye-watering amount of money to come to a pre-decided conclusion that lockdown wasn't introduced early enough. How can Matt Hancock suggest we should have locked down three weeks earlier when the World Health Organisations didn't declare a global pandemic until the 13th of March? And why does no one point out that Germany only locked down two days before we did? I'm also incensed, says Helen, that Boris Johnson's being held responsible for every COVID death. But the deaths from any other cause, both during the pandemic and as a result of delayed treatment for other diseases, doesn't seem to matter. Constantine Kissin summed it up on Jeff Norcott's podcast, What Most People Think, when he said, if every death from COVID is your responsibility as Prime Minister, and every death from the effects of lockdown is not, how in that incentive structure can you get people to think about both? It's a good point. Very good point. And this is from Hugh, spelt the Welsh way, H-U-W. I write for a Welsh weekly magazine, says Hugh. I've managed to get agreement from Welsh Labour and Plaid Cymru to respond by the end of February to the ideas set out in da-da-da, Liam Halligan's Home Truths. I am waiting for the Conservatives come back to me. I'll let you know what they say. Love the podcast, <laughs> by the way. Best wishes, Hugh. Die down, Hugh. I mean, look at this. Implementing the masterly work of the co-pilot to shame the Welsh government over housing. This is the way forward, Bach. Hooray, hooray. Let's make a cup of tea in Ivor's boiler. Jones <laughs> 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 <Do you laughs> the steam. <laughs> and on that bombshell of Welsh cultural appropriation, <laughs> don't cancel me. That's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reason views. Email of the week, it's Alison's turn. It's going to be Anne for her lovely, touching email about her father-in-law, the loss of her father-in-law, not from COVID, but from lockdown. You're welcome to appropriate my culture as long as you're sufficiently humble. (laughs) Anne, email us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Put mug winner in the subject heading. Give us your postal address and we'll send you a mug and thanks also to everybody who phoned us last weekend to donate to the telegraph christmas appeal a fantastic effort many of you who we spoke to said you were planet normal listeners and that warmed the cockles of our heart it certainly did and the chestnuts as well if you enjoy planet normal please do leave a rating and a review on apple Podcasts or spotify it really does help others to find the podcast and it don't half cheer up the co-pilot And as we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view. Thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Dujard, Cass Ho and Louisa Wells. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. (laughs) 
Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.